ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I'm Clint Jasper and you're listening to A Big Country. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're visiting what could be the country's most remote craft shop. In the hills of northeast Victoria, and kind of in the middle of nowhere, a wool producer is selling her yarn from a shop right next to the paddock where her sheep graze. We'll meet some students making a connection with Indigenous culture through music lessons as they learn to play the didgeridoo, and we'll hear how assistance dogs are helping war veterans cope with post-traumatic stress disorder and changing their lives for the better. I wouldn't be here, standing here at the moment, without her in that I probably wouldn't have the confidence to go out. She just helps ground as well. Things like if I have a bad moment, I need to stop. She'll actually climb across my chest and lay on my chest and and just help uh, that grounding aspect or she'll lie on my feet or, or just sort of on my arms or whatever and, yeah, just sort of help. The amazing four-legged friends helping war veterans to get on with life by providing support and comfort, that is coming up. First today, we're learning about an unusual tree known as the compass tree. Desert Currajong trees are hard to miss in parts of the country. Their lush green foliage stands out in dry, arid landscapes. They're even a good source of food and water, and as Chris Lewis discovered, they can point you in the right direction if you're lost. The Currajong looks like one single trunk generally and it's got a nice beautiful evergreen canopy and it's probably you know it's it's a tree that you see that the kids draw on paper. (laughs) This is Paul Jones he's a partialist at Bugatti Station just near Mount Magnet in the central west of WA and he's right the best way to describe a desert Currajong is how a child might draw a tree one straight trunk with a roundish green top. You, there's probably a number of ways to describe a currajong, but a currajong, if you look at it, and it's got that nice single trunk, and it hasn't got a canopy that's too high, but it's a very important tree because it's because of the compass tree. Paul often refers the desert currajongs to a compass tree, as he explains why. Let's, let's just take it that we all know that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and it goes around as, as the earth rotates, you know, it travelled around on the north side. And so in the afternoon sun is more intense and that's what's created the um, rough bark on the west side of the Currajong. On the south side of even some Currajongs and Mulgars, you get the moss growing on the south side. And, uh, but that's how the sort of compass tree comes into play. You know, there's lots of, there's lots of knickknacks in the bush that you can use to get your directions. You know, you can, you can use the wind and all sorts of things. Down the road from Paul lives Adrian Morrissey, another pastoralist who grew up in the area. On winter on a cloudy day, if you're in a paddock that's got no landmark like a hill or anything on it, and, um, and the vegetation's fairly high, you can lose your direction, your sense of direction, and as soon as you find a Currajong tree, you can get your perspective back again by looking at that. It's the most reliable tree in the bush or setting your direction if you, if you need to. Dr Richard Carter has spent three years studying the Brachychitans, or the Currajong species. Most of Australian trees are sort of, you know, hanging on sort of skeletally with a bare number of leaves and resources and such, whereas uh, the Brachychitans kind of, you know, pop out in the landscape. These 
vibrant green leaves and these sort of really intense uh, red flowers. Um, so they really struck me as being an amazing group. He says the desert currajongs are quite interesting as they've most likely migrated from the tropical northern parts of Australia and over time adapted to new environments. Because these species occur on the sort of arid wet boundary and the species themselves have sort of a, oh, a sort of monsoonal rainforest origin, as it's moved through the country it's sort of hit these sort of arid areas and just found ways to, to cope and adapt without really changing itself too much. What happens is the survival of some individuals who have the right characteristics changes the population over time. So if you can't cope with dry environments, you're more likely to, to perish, right, and not produce offspring. And those few that can will produce more offspring. And those offspring will, will be more suited to the environment. And so the gradual changes to, the, to a population, if the right variations present, it then can become adapted to that new environment and survive as it moves into it. And being a plant, it can't move away from an environment it doesn't like. So it's got that sort of either survive or die sort of option. This is Raymond Little. He's a Batimaya elder living in Mount Magnet. He calls the desert Karajong trees, Kaya trees. They're good shade. We're only out in the stationery to walk around and look for the younger ones, Kaya trees. He says when you dig up the roots of the trees, the yams, they taste similar to a pear or coconut. We dig them up and we just eat the root. Yeah, they've got a lot of moisture because they're damp all the time. Raven says the desert Karajong trees or the Kaya trees are a good place for people to sit down and have a rest on a hot day. Yeah, just a family, you know, all travel together. And we'll pull up and they'll make someone will go and just clean a little floor that. And there's a tree, Kaya tree or something. The leaf of a Karajong tree is shaped like an emu foot and some people call them the emu tree because of this. But during summer these leaves are lush and bright green and quite soft, which is something quite useful for the wedge-tail eagles. You know everybody's probably seen different nests and they have that, you know, like they, some birds line them with feathers and the little willy wagtail lines it with spider web and everything else and, and the eagles use Karajong leaves. Pastoralist Paul Jones says he's seen plenty of eagles' nests lined with fresh Karajong leaves for the young. They use the Karajong leaves to reline their nests and you'll see all these Karajong leaves I've seen when they first start their nests and freshen and when they freshen them up they use Karajong leaves inside their nest. Paul grew up on country and thinks we shouldn't take the trees for granted. You see some little bloody trees growing and they must be like little bonsai trees in real hard country like breakaway country and they're just sort of not very high and you can tell they're old trees but how they survive there with that moisture and how they even get there you know it makes me wonder but other people probably just you know don't even realize they're there you know you know any tree or something how it takes its shape and how they all flower and seed at the same time and whatever you know there's there's a lot more out there that sort of we we just take for granted Megan Williams is calling to one of her prized sheep on her property here at Kuitong in the Upper Murray region of northeast Victoria. Oh, Manny's the merino that's right in there. He's got horns. I was, if I could get him to come over, you'd get all his horns. Oh, yeah. Manny, come on, bud. Hey, man. 
Kiwitong is about 400 kilometres northeast of Melbourne and home to less than 30 people. It's not only where Megan has a sheep farm, but also where she runs what has to be one of the most remote craft stores in the country. Kiwitong's literally the middle of nowhere. <laughs> We're in the middle of a state forest. Um, there's literally a pub in Kiwitong and that's it, the hub and us. We've had a lot of good fun with the shop. Dad and I went to a lot of clearing sales. We've got some old ammo boxes and things like that. The gentleman we bought off had collected quite a lot of old stuff. And when we were clearing out our sheds, we'd find a lot of bits and pieces. So we've got a lot of old farm gates, chairs that we've picked up from salvage yards, things like that that we've attached to walls. But um, I don't know. I, I like all the timber in the old shops. There's a lot of nice old timber and it's just nice to have. Yeah. Hello, I'm Annie Brown, and I'm visiting Megan, who is not your average wool producer. She doesn't sell by the bale, she sells by the skein, which is about 100 grams of yarn. We scour down in, in Geelong at Robinson Scourers. We send to another place and get it all carded, and then we use a couple of different mills in Victoria and New South Wales to do all our yarn. All our yarn then comes back to us and we dye everything here. And from here we sell online, at markets and in store. We tend to run quite a few Corridale, much nicer for spinning. They've just got a really nice fleece for spinning. But we also run quite a few Merino with them and then we put our Merino in every three or four generations to basically just bring that really nice fineness back into our Corridale wool. We have different colours. We have spotty sheep, dark sheep, and we have a beautiful um, murret sheep, which is the beautiful caramel colour sheep. So we've got quite a few different colours in there. And then we have a small flock of English Leicester, so a heritage breed of sheep that we run as well, which give us these beautiful um, curly locks that we, we sell for felters. Megan has a flock of 150 sheep and 60 alpacas. She says working with fibre and wool products has always been in the family. We've all done craft for years. Um, my mum's always been a spinner, so she's an avid spinner. She spins in her sleep. We go to markets and mum gets a little spinning wheel out and spins while we're talking to people. She started off with a small shop, a, f- a flock of coloured sheep. And when we moved up here, they came up here. And from there, we, we just started collecting a few different sheep and and playing around with it and spending time with local farmers, asking them how to breed up better fleeces and get better micron out of what we had. And it just it just compounded from there. <laughs> we had a bit of a feral dog problem, so we bought some alpaca to protect our sheep from foxes and dogs. And from there, we've kind of pushed that in with our, with our wool as well. So we have a, a mixture of both. And knitting, crocheting, like using the wool and fibre products, yeah. is, it feels like it's had a real resurgence in the last yeah. few years, a lot COVID's, of people. COVID's kind of kicked in really well with people. People have learnt how to do a lot of different things. So there's a lot of knitting, crocheting. Um, I weave. There's a lot of weavers out there as well. So there's a lot of people that have come back to doing different things and it's it's not your traditional old I'm going to knit a jumper there's some really spectacular things that are getting made now are a lot of people sort of I guess impressed at the 
the structure of your business and that you can go out into the paddock and see the sheep that the wool has come off and then come in here and see it spun and yeah. in a ball like you see the from paddock to yeah paddock to paddock to product yeah look in summer we tend to have <laughs> we normally have the alpacas quite close to the shop they tend to come up a lot closer and a lot of the alpacas will come in and let people feed them and things like that we've got about half a dozen sheep that think they are alpacas as well so they tend to stick with them we tend to have hand raised sheep every year so we always have two or three that are way too (laughs) they think they're people (laughs) they don't think they're sheep (laughs) it'll be interesting to see what happens the next few years how everyone kind of develops um and we're off we're an off-grid farm so we talk to a lot of people that have kind of moved off-grid and there's a lot of people moving in that direction that want to learn how to spin and want to learn how to how to dye their own product and make their own product so I think that kind of market will open up a little bit more in the next few years. Megan Williams owner of Kuitong Coloured Wool and Fibre Company she was speaking to Annie Brown from her sheep farm in northeast Victoria. Before that Chris Lewis brought us a story of the desert currajong tree. You'll find a link to that story through the A Big Country homepage on the ABC website. I'm Clint Jasper, with you for A Big Country. Still to come, we'll meet some of the primary school students picking up the didgeridoo and learning about Indigenous culture. And if you've ever been cheered up or calmed down by a furry friend when you've been out of sorts, you'll have some idea of what an assistance dog can do for a war veteran with PTSD. Reporter Sarah Abbott caught up with Tasmanian veterans Jay Leach and Ian McMahon, who've completed a training course to have their dogs accredited as assistance animals. Nice loose lead. Yep, nice time for a treat. Perfect. Look at that focus. Good girl. Jay, you and Frank have been in training together for how long? Uh, about four years now. Wow, so you must have built up a lot of kind of expertise in that time. Uh, yeah, I had him as a puppy, so when I started and I was told, recommended to get a dog, yeah. um, they asked me what type of dog I'd have, so I got him. Uh, we went through about six months of just knowing each other, doing our basics. And then we had the gorgeous Carly who basically took us both on because we both went through the training. It's not just Frank. And, yeah, we've been on that journey ever since. He's one of the best things that's ever happened because I was in a dark space when I got out of the army. And uh, they kept saying, get a dog, get a dog, from all my people that were helping me, the doctors and that. And I thought there was other people out there that were worse than me that would benefit for it. I didn't want to take anyone's place. But yeah, when I did take that step, yeah, it worked awesomely. Because I had Frank and then I also have my wife, Lindsay, and they both look after me. So, yeah. Is Frankie the sort of dog that strangers can come straight up to and have a pat? Or is it important to ask you first? It's very important to ask first because they're a working dog. And there's signs on it, the jackets that clearly says that, you know what I mean, that do not disturb in assistance dog. And it's awesome to see some of the parents and everything else with the little kids will tell them, you know, it's a working dog and everything else. And if they're close by, because I hear that, I always say, yeah, no, that's awesome. Thank you very much for doing that. They can come and say hello now. Uh, But you do get the village idiots that will just, you know, I mean, fall in love with dogs and just automatically will walk up to a dog thinking it's okay. And then sometimes that can get the handler's anxiety up straight away because that's what the dog's there for to look after the handler but it's a learning thing as well for everyone you know i mean assistance dogs still in its infant stage so they're just 
becoming more aware now in the public. Yeah. You know what I mean? So people are starting to understand it more. What has what difference has Frankie made to your day to day life? hundred percent. Um, when I got out of the army and I was medically discharged, I went into a really black hole. Uh, I didn't think there was anything really left to do. All I lived for was army. And um, basically, when the doctors and everything else uh, strongly recommended that I get a dog, it sort of changed uh, my environment, my ability to get out, because I didn't want to get out, uh, leave the house or go anywhere. Um, so with Frank, it allowed me to do that. It is one of the best things, and I strongly recommend it to anyone that's thinking, you know, that's in a dark hole and needs a best mate that'll look after them as well. So yeah, he's a uh, yeah, he's a good dog. He's my boy. Hey, look at Woody. He's my boy. Yes. Hello. He's a clever boy. Hey. Good girl. And then we'll turn and head back the other direction. Good oh, good job, Charlie. Beautiful. Well done. Ian, you and Missy look like you're a um, pretty tight team. What's the story with you guys? Yeah, we are we are a tight team. Um, she and I have been together for two years, and uh, since then we haven't probably spent more than ten minutes apart, and that's uh, about it. And and uh, we trained up her to be my assistant's dog, so which is awesome because she is with me all the time. She gives me more confidence. Um, she makes me change my focus. I've got PTSD, um, suffer from anxiety and depression as a result of my service in the army and she's just such a stabilising influence. So how did you guys actually come to meet? Uh, my wife, a friend of hers, suggested we meet Missy. She was a farm dog who'd failed as a farm dog and our farm was apparently going to put her down because uh, she just wasn't being able to do what she should do and so she walked into her house skin and bone and scraped noses and as the run to the litter and um, yeah we haven't been apart since so hmm. oh. do you feel like you knew from that first instant that she was going to be a great match for you yes yeah it was she walked in and it was it was literally um, love at first sight almost <laughs> I mean she just walked in and jumped on top of my lap and yeah we just had a really great bond it's funny how those things can happen yeah, yeah. so you guys have been all the way through the training program with care dogs in a nutshell, what was that process? Yeah, so Missy and I started fresh. So care dogs, you bring the dog and then they match a trainer with you. After about 18 months or so, we did our final assessment and um, she's now fully qualified care dog, uh, assistance dog. I wouldn't be here, standing here at the moment without her in that I probably wouldn't have the confidence to go out. She just helps ground as well, so things like if I have a bad moment, I need to stop. She'll actually climb across my chest and lay on my chest and, and just help uh, that grounding aspect or she'll lie on my feet or, or just sort of on my arms or whatever and, yeah, just sort of help support. So, um, yeah, she helps everyday life around town and, and uh, at home. Real best mate then, hey? Yeah, she is very much the, the best mate. Yeah, heel. Charlie, sit. Good girl.
Um, hi everyone, my name's Liam Moran. I'm a proud Berapai Dungadi man from the mid North Coast. Yeah, so at Meriwether Public School I run a ditch group, um, or a Yidiki group with the boys. Uh, I've successfully been doing it here for about eight years, um, which has been awesome. Mr. Culhane, the principal here, was actually the first principal to sign up to the program all those years ago. Uh, yeah, so I like to run a cultural group with the boys and teach them Yidiki, but also teach them a bit about their culture. So Yidiki is the traditional name from uh, up in Arnhem Land, from the, the Yongu Nation. Um, so the, the language does come from them, uh, and they're, they're considered the traditional custodians of the Yidiki. Um, so yeah, that's where we get the name from. I look at Yidiki as a, a key that opens the door to culture. So it's fun, the kids can get up and perform and, and get together in a group, but I also find that it, it starts to pique the kids' interest in other things culturally. You know, so we'll, we'll teach the boys about bush tucker and they've made rope before and we've done cultural tours down Glenrock, a local area here in Newcastle. So yeah, just try to mix things up for the boys. Here at Merriweather Public School in the Hunter region of New South Wales, Liam Moran is sharing his culture and teaching students how to play the yidiki, or didgeridoo. He counts himself lucky to have been introduced to the instrument at a young age, and now he is bringing it to the next generation. I was uh, quite lucky when I was growing up, I grew up on the Central Coast, that uh, a few friends could play the didgeridoo. Um, so I originally le learned off a fella called Luke and then in high school uh, a man called Jake McDonald ended up coming to Adauba um, with Nathan Towney and uh, they ran a dig group there so that's where I first started to learn and, and then I started to run the program that we ran down there on the Central Coast up here in the Hunter. Hello, I'm Keely Johnson, and I'm chatting with some of the students who are learning how to play the instrument, like Year 4 student, Blake, who has been taking lessons with Liam Warren for about a year. How did you hear about them? Did someone reach out to you? Yeah, my brother did. But um, I started, I joined it when I was in Year 3. And before you did dig sessions, had you ever played the didgeridoo? No. Did you always want to give it a go? Mm. And how were you when you first started? Bad, because you need to make it like real perfect so you can play it good. And it was real hard to like, make it like that and I didn't know how to do it. So how are you now compared to that? Uh, kind of good. <laughs> You're not the best in the class? No, not the best in the class. How do you play the didgeridoo? So you go like... And you that's the start off with it. And then, yeah, you keep doing that and Mr. Liam will teach you all the things. And what are some of those things, like animal noises? Yeah, like the howl, growl of kangaroo or something, and kookaburra, and the some voice change kind of thing, and yeah. The yidiki or didgeridoo is a bit of a weird one. It, it's a wind instrument because um, the boys are blowing into it, but it's actually also a percussion. So they're vibrating their lips, and as that sound bounces off the walls inside the yidiki, it produces a sound. So um, for a yidiki to work, it has to be over a meter so that those vibrations and sound waves can create the noise. The main noises you'll hear through a yidiki is, is mimicry of the the lands and animals around us. So 
the three main ones that you'll hear all the time is the kookaburra, the kangaroo and the dingo. Um, you'll hear them quite commonly that people will play but obviously any noise you can make with your, with your mouth and your voice you can also put through a yidiki. Year 5 student, Junior, likes making the animal sounds. What does it sound like even without the didgeridoo? He says Liam gives the group challenges, like the timing game. Oh yeah, the timing game is where you, um, like you, so you grab the didgeridoo and then you have to blow it as long as possible, like as long as you can, and like just beat your, like you beat your own record. Liam runs the culture groups at 13 schools across the Hunter, sharing his knowledge with about 100 boys. He says it's an extremely rewarding job. Obviously, sharing culture is, is probably the best part, but I think it's um, I think it's watching the boys grow up. You know, there's a lot of boys here that I've seen when they're in kindergarten and now have gone off to high school. So it's it's probably the best part is seeing them mature and grow and, and be, be strong and confident in their culture. Keely Johnson brought us that story from the New South Wales Hunter region where students are learning about Aboriginal cultural knowledge and language. For more on that story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program, head online to our website, abc.net.au, and search for A Big Country to find the program page with the links to all of today's stories. And you can also listen to past episodes of the show. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.